interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Well, considering that I was before you this morning, I'm reminded of the story of a religious master who was invited by a group of villagers to come and address them. My dear friend, he began, do you know what I'm about to tell you? They looked at each other and thought, this guy is funny. If we knew, why would we come here? No, sir, they replied. Well then, he said, there's no need for me to say anything to people who are as ignorant as yourselves. <laughs> and he left. <laughs> they got him to come the second time. My dear friends, do you know what I'm about to tell you? They thought, well, the last time we said no, he left. This time we better reverse our answer. Yes, sir, they replied. Well, then he said, there is no need for me to say anything to people who know it already. And he left. They got him to come the third time. My dear friends, he persisted, do you know what I'm about to tell you? Well, they thought to themselves, this guy is so funny. Uh, we gave him the two possible answers. The last time we said yes, he left. The time before we said no, he left. This time, just to be sure, we better mix our answers. Well, sir, they replied, some of us do and some of us don't. In that case, said the speaker, let those who know tell those who don't. <laughs> and he laughed. Well, that's a very good lesson for an after-dinner speech, by the way. Um, when you go to these banquets where they have these long speeches after dinner, that's a very good lesson. But this has a serious point to it, this story. Uh, by the way, it comes from an old Islamic tradition. And the story has many layers of interpretation. Um, one is in terms of pedagogy, in terms of teaching and instruction. It is virtually impossible to do any creative teaching, any creative pedagogy in an environment where people think they just can't get it, they don't know, they're ignorant, or they don't wish to know. No teaching is possible there. Anymore, than is teaching possible at the other end of this spectrum, where people are so cocksure, they know all the answers, they know all the questions, there's nothing you can tell them. No teaching is possible there. It's really in the middle. Let those who know tell those who don't. Which says that teaching real pedagogy takes place as an act of mutual instruction, <coughs> learning from one another. And you have to say in the religious uh, setting, that is absolutely correct. Um, but there is, of course, as always with these stories, a catch. To really find enlightenment, you have to be hungry for it. So they invite the lecturer to come. 
the first time, the second time, and the third time, until finally the penny drops. I am here before you, probably for many of you the third time, but certainly the second time. And what I want to do this afternoon is to discuss with you something about which we are all aware. We all know what is going on about this particular subject I want to talk to you about. And what I want to do is to sort it out, to sort of put it in a frame so that you can see it. Um, let me say something about this, seeing something in front of you. There is a story about this same religious scholar who had a reputation as a smuggler. And he used to come across the border with his donkeys laden. And the customs officials would take the donkeys and take the bags off when they found out that he was a smuggler. And they would search through everything. And sometimes when they thought he was carrying bags of salt but hiding some gold nuggets uh, in the bag, they would melt, they would dissolve the salt in water <laughs> and just let him go through uh, the donkeys. Finally, he retired from his business. He wasn't getting any uh, less wealthy. In fact, he was getting wealthier by the years. And the customs officials were really angry with themselves that they could never catch him out. But he retired and they asked him, Sir, what was, what, was, what was it that you were smuggling? We could never find you out. Oh, simple, said the man. I was smuggling donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Something slipping through your fingers because you are trained to look at the world in a particular way. And what I want to do is to offer a framework, a way of sorting out the information and the reality that is out there. So I've entitled my talk, The Eruption, the Growth, the Development of World Christianity, uh, Social Renewal and Christian Expansion. In the year 2000, the course, 2002 I should say, the course of Christian Expansion has continued to gather momentum. And the churches in Africa and Asia and elsewhere are bursting at the seams with an uninterrupted influx of new members. We were told, I was told when I was a student, both in this country and elsewhere, that we should expect a steady decline of Christianity by the year 2000. With the additional fact of the resurgence of Islam, existing to seal the fate of the church. For example, at the great ecumenical conference, 1910, Protestant conference, the delegates were told by the American Presbyterian lay leader, J.R. Mott, to expect Africa to be overtaken by Islam. So the expansion of Christianity coming at the end of the 20th century has come as something of a surprise, and we need to examine some of the reasons for the expansion. The facts of the expansion are in little dispute. If we take Africa, in 1900, by which time the continent had come under colonial rule, there were some 8.7 million Christians, about 9% of the total population of the continent. Most of those 8.7 million Christians were Coptic and Ethiopian Orthodox. Muslims in 1900 outnumbered Christians 
by a ratio better than 4 to 1. Some about 35 million Muslims uh, throughout the continent, north, south, east, and west, in 1900. In 1962, I'm jumping from 1900 to 1962, 1900, colonialism firmly in place. 1962, colonialism in retreat. The end of colonial empire, the beginning of nationalism. Africa had moved out of colonial control, and there were, in 1962, about 50, 55 million Christians with Muslims numbered, numbering about 145 million. Again, the ratio is pretty, pretty constant. Um, by 1985, however, it was becoming abundantly clear that a major expansion of Christianity had commenced in Africa just at the time that we were busy taking the stock of the colonial empires in Africa. We thought the colonialism had retreated, had gone. The end of the missionary era had also gone. We should expect a steady decline in Christian numbers. In fact, this was not what happened. And there was little really in the history, in the training, in the expectations of leaders to prepare them for what was going to hit them. By 1985, there were over... 16,500 conversions to Christianity every 24 hours by 1985. Uh, Newsweek magazine in an April issue last year, 2001, in an article, cover story actually, called The New Face of Christianity, cover story by the religion editor of Newsweek, Kenneth Woodward, estimated that 1,200 new churches are founded every month in Africa. 1,200 new churches. As I said, there was nothing really... What you see is really what you expect to see. And even today, most Westerners don't see these figures. The facts are there, they don't see them. It's like the smuggler and the donkeys. You know, these facts come... Um, trailing pastors all the time. It's all there, all over the place. And believe me, if you went around the churches today and asked them, you know, which is the fastest growing religion in the world, they would say anything and everything except Christianity. <laughs> uh, it's quite an astonishing thing. It's, for me, it tells me that historical facts are not enough. Um, something else is needed to bring those facts home to make them hit home. Uh, and that is the interpretation, the analysis. Anyway, these uh, figures, by the way, are available in many, many sources, secular, religious, ecumenical. Um, what happened was that the significance of these numbers was lost on a generation that had grown to expect that Christianity was no good news and was entitled to no good news. I'm paraphrasing here a comment by a theological student at the University of Hamburg uh, when I was there a few years ago. She said to me, these facts, you shouldn't publicize them, if, even if they are correct. I said, then what, what should I do? I'm only a reporter. 
and I want you to trust what I say. She said to me, you must suppress the facts. Suppress the facts. We don't want to hear about them. And that mood is pretty, pretty general. Pretty general. Now, as I said, the facts of the expansion are little in dispute. Their significance is what requires explanation. Why? You have a right to ask me, why? Why this expansion of this time? One explanation, I think, is that it's a chronological one. 1962, the end of colonialism, removed an obstacle, if you like, an embarrassment for Christianity. And so Christianity could take off. Colonialism was not going to stand in its way any longer. So that chronological fact, the convergence of this enormous explosion in numbers and the dramatic decline of the colonial empire at 1960-1962 really was the beginning of this takeoff period. Maybe one explanation. A second, I think, you will not be surprised to hear me say this, is the delayed effect of mother tongue development and the translation of Christian religious materials into the vernacular. The scriptures, in the case of the Protestants, the catechism, in the case of the Catholics. With vernacular translation went cultural renewal, and it encouraged local populations to view Christianity in a favorable light. A third factor was African agency. Um, there was not really very much to go on in terms of structures, institutions, finance, and material resources. The churches in Africa were very poor and are still very poor. And so that's the other coincidence here, that the, the expansion of Christianity seems to be taking place without any corresponding growth in strength of structures and institutions. So you have then to say, you have to say, that expansion is not being driven by structures and institutions, which causes enormous problems for us in the West, because for us religion has to be explained in terms of motivation, uh, political or economic. Uh, and since you can't apply those reasons, then we are not able <laughs> to comprehend the growth of Christianity around the world. But that's the third factor, that African agency came forward to take responsibility for the gospel. By the way, this, is, this has been true for a long time in the history of both the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches in Africa. Um, it is really the local catechists uh, who went into villages and into places where priests never entered, who took the faith. Eventually, priests arrived, um, and they found the church already established. Uh, this is certainly the case with the Anglican church in South Africa, that it was the local catechists, um, the local preachers, lay leaders, who established the church. When an Anglican missionary arrived from London, he was astounded to find that converts in one area of South Africa 
had not only been gathering, their numbers growing, but they had put up a bamboo chapel with local materials, um, very poorly constructed. But this was where they were meeting. So when he arrived, the church was already there. It was not the missionary that created the church. The church was already there before he came. <laughs> and this is fairly typical. Another factor, very important one, is a theological one, one that statistics cannot explain. And that is this parent paradox, again a paradox, that Christianity has grown best in those societies in Africa where the local people have retained the indigenous name for God. This is so anti-PC. This is so counterintuitive. Again, we're not able to understand it. Um, I have a colleague, a dear, well, several colleagues, dear colleagues in history, who will proclaim to the world that Christianity came into traditional cultures and destroyed them, killed their God, and established the church. Okay, if you show me one example, one example, anywhere in the world, where Christianity destroyed the indigenous name for God, and then converted the people, I'll give up my profession. <laughs> the facts are not there to support it. But the opposite happened, in fact. That everywhere you go in Africa, that was, by the way, uh, a research uh, investigation conducted in the 1960s by the Vatican into this question, and they produce a booklet uh, on, this, on this whole issue. They found a remarkable um, uh, picture in Africa that Christian practice seems to revive and revitalize indigenous interest in the local names for God. But they found almost the opposite for Islam. Among the Wolofs, among the Mandinka, among the Fulbe, the Fulani of North Nigeria, and right across from Adama in northern Cameroon, right across Niger, uh, right across the Futa Jalong, right across the Senegal and Futa Toro. That these people seem to have lost the indigenous name for God, along with the process of Islamization. And the conclusion of the report, of the Vatican report, was they didn't know why. They were puzzled by this. I can tell them. I can tell them why. But anyway, this is the theological dimension. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, we haven't really begun to, to take it in, in terms of what this means for the gospel, what it means for culture, what it means for the, the people regarded as Gentile or taboo or unchosen people people on the periphery, we forget so much um, because Christianity has been so well assimilated into Western culture that we think our mission in America is to mainstream everybody. That's what we think, to mainstream everybody. Um, Christianity is a moral minority vocation. Um, I'll go over the, skip over the Islamic uh, uh, response to the Islamic comparison here. 
I am also aware that I address a Western audience whose attitudes on the missionary legacy of Christianity, especially the missionary legacy as a background to the eruption, to the explosion of world Christianity, the attitudes on this question are at best complex and defensive. In a roundtable discussion, these attitudes can be explored and perhaps satisfactorily resolved. It is hard to do that from the podium here, up here, up front, but I'd like to give it a try. And that means that I want to change to the format of a question and answer style. Let me shift to that format and see whether that way, a dialogue, can help to advance and promote understanding of what is happening. So I shift to that now. Question. The title of your address is Christian Expansion and the Growth of World Christianity. Can you unpack that for us? What do you mean by Christian Expansion? Is that a euphemism for Christian triumphalism? Answer. Christian expansion is the growth of Christianity among populations that have not been Christian. It is not a euphemism for Christian triumphalism, but a cause for action and a challenge to complacency. Question. What do you mean by renewal? Answer. By renewal, I mean the reinvigoration of all customs and traditions in service to the new ethics of love, of reconciliation, justice, and responsibility. Question. Who sowed the seeds of this expansion? Answer. In the main, the missionary agents of mother tongue development for the purposes of Christian translation, together with their local colleagues and partners. Question. Has this expansion, this what you call explosion of world Christianity, been all gain and no loss? Answer. No, it has been a bit of both. Question. Can you say more? <laughs> Answer. Yes. <laughs> On the gain side, the churches have grown Membership has increased, and in some cases astronomically so, and communities have come into being in areas of strife and despair. But, on the negative side, false prophets have appeared, the simple and the ignorant have been taken advantage of, ethnic hostility has at times flared into grim killings and genocide, and ethical standards in public life have slipped. Question. I don't know then if I should be enthusiastic about Christian expansion if this sad legacy is the result. But that is a statement. Here is the question related to it. Should we be doing any reaping, any rejoicing in this deeply splintered and fragmented field as you describe it? Answer. Well, I'm not sure we can do anything else. We have to welcome people into the church, because if we don't, others will. 
Also, I don't want to paint too one-sided a picture, even to suggest that joining the church solves all the problems of life and society. Question, what then are you suggesting? Answer, I am suggesting that for the new African Christians, the church is a good place to begin to work out the problems and the challenges of life and society. The ideals of faith and forgiveness, undergirded by the practice of the arts of charitable action, community solidarity, trust and faithfulness, offer a way forward for all of society. The Christian example is part of the public good, not apart from it. Question. When you speak of the public good, don't you think it is harmful to talk of Christian expansion because of its sectarian, triumphalist overtones? Should we, in the West, not instead be talking about the expansion of goodwill among all people without regard to religious labels? Why are you so preoccupied with religion? Answer. I see where you are heading. Yes, by all means, let's talk about the expansion of goodwill among all people. But let us not make that goodwill an alternative or a rival to religion, lest that goodwill itself become sectarian and triumphalistic. Question. Good move. But... I still ask whether we would be better off without the Christian label in view of Christianity's lamentable record in slavery, racism, colonialism, and intolerance. Again, that is a question, but take that as a question. Should Christians not be spending their time in breast-beating rather than in gloating? Answer. I support unlimited penance among Christians, and I oppose all gloating. But I am reluctant to accept your argument that Christian wrongdoing disqualifies all future conversions any more than Christian good deeds justifies Christian boasting. I could put it in the form of a question. Why should Christianity not be involved, not be absolved by the deeds of the saints of the church even as the deeds of sinners condemn it? But take that as a rhetorical question. Question. Let me press with a direct question. I will hold my objections in check for the time being. You said that the evidence for the expansion of Christianity around the world is little in dispute. Are you suggesting that the explanation and the interpretation are in dispute? Answer. Yes, precisely. Question. How then do the explanation and the interpretation differ from the evidence? (coughs) Answer. The explanation and the interpretation of Christian expansion usually carry a great deal of Western guilt complex and so deflect attention from the facts on the ground. I guess I would also maintain that the Western guilt complex hinders us from acknowledging the role of local agents in the story of the planting of the church. The West still looms so large in standard accounts of third world Christianity that there is little room for the men and women on the ground who are responsible for planting the church and nurturing people in the faith. 
question. It is ironic that the wrongs of the West should perpetuate further wrongs against those still left, left in the field. Anyhow, my question is whether you think there can be a genuine convergence between a Christian Africa and a secular West, given the lopsided nature of the strength of religion in the two societies. Answer. That's a tough question, and I don't know the answer. I honestly don't know whether there can be a convergence on such unequal terms, and if so, what the convergence would look like. At present, one is struck, I am struck by the disparity. Africa has become, or is becoming, for the first time in its history, a Christian continent in terms of sheer numbers, while by the same token, the West is becoming increasingly secular. Whether that will mean a corresponding estrangement in sympathy and outlook between the West and the non-West, I don't know, but we should think about it. Question. An arresting phrase, Africa, a Christian continent. It rings so strange to Western ears. Would you expand on it? Answer. Yes, I would. I mean, the statistical weight has shifted, has moved Africa firmly into the Christian orbit. And that happened only a few years ago, which is why the notion is so novel and so dramatic. Even in Africa itself, the churches are scarcely able to cope with the elementary issue of absorbing new members, let alone with the deeper issues of formation and training. Question. So for the churches, then, the expansion is not an unmitigated success, is it? Answer. No, expansion creates problems of scale and size. Question. Many people in the West are skeptical that Christianity has done much good in Africa. They think of what white rule has done in Zimbabwe as Rhodesia, in Kenya under the white emergency rule in the 1950s, in South Africa under Calvinist-inspired apartheid regime, and in the ethnic killings in Rwanda and Burundi, and now with the AIDS epidemic in which over 4,900 people die every year, every day. What, where is the good news in that? Answer. Not much, I accept. Let me, however, stress that Christianity has remained a potent force in the lives of Africans, most of them poor, many of them persecuted, and the churches have remained major social institutions with an effect far out of proportion to the resources they command. It is as social institutions that the churches have been involved in the AIDS crisis, in mediation efforts in Rwanda and Burundi, in efforts in community building, education, in the advancement of women, in peace and justice issues. As for apartheid, African Christian leaders took a prominent part in challenging white supremacist power and in working for truth, forgiveness and reconciliation. Question. Well, what about the issue of religious divisiveness? Answer. Well, let us remember 
that Christianity in Africa is still developing, is still unfolding. The vast majority of Christians in Africa, over 350 million at the moment, are young and first or second generation. So it's still a young church, it's a suffering church, it's the church of the poor, and they're still trying to make sense of all the problems that are hitting them from all different sides. We don't know how the story will end, the story of Christianity. What we do know is that more people are joining that story and still waiting to join it. And as there is little evidence that Christian Africa will repeat the disasters of Christian Europe. Let me, if you will allow me, finish with a point. African Christianity has not been a bitterly fought religion. There have been no ecclesiastical courts condemning unbelievers, heretics and witches to death, no bloody battles of doctrine and polity such as took place in the West, no jihad against infidels, no amputations, no condemnations of theological difference or dissent. The lines of Christian profession in Africa are not etched in the blood of the enemies. And to that extent, I have to say that African Christianity has diverged from its European and Western origins. Question. That may well be, but do you not have denominationalism in Africa? Answer. Yes and no. If by denominationalism you mean a proliferation of different churches and the sects they spawn, Africa is up to its ears in the stuff. And besides, many of those groups are transplants from Europe and North America rather than of African origin. Africa, however, adds its own brand names to the mix more than 70 times 7 in number. On the other hand, Denominationalism, if you mean by that, the ideology of intolerance, exclusiveness, social, social stratification and class separation, then the answer is no. You will find members of the governing classes, as well as the poor, randomly scattered among all the major churches and denominations. The lines separating denominations are often links rather than barriers, especially since Vatican II, but often even before. Question, would you allow the impression to be formed that African Christianity has no major theological problems or issues? Answer, no, because I think that would be false. The expansion of Christianity has thrown up numerous religious problems. And so recent was this expansion that the churches are still in the early stages of stock-taking. But notice, notice that it is the momentum of the expansion that has induced the stock-taking. It is not that the churches were able to put the structures in place to have all the questions answered and then to go out with a program and an agenda that has produced the expansion. On the contrary. It is the expansion, this explosion, that is forcing the churches to rationalize and prioritize.
because they don't have the resources to respond to the explosion. Growth requires the expansion of physical buildings as well as the expansion of horizons to make new room for new ideas. Question. If I may take you back to the statistics of African expansion, it was a lot of facts and figures and you went over it too quickly. You suggested that people converted to Christianity more often since the end of colonial rule than they did in the entire period of the colonial empires. Many people in the West find that very hard to believe. Can you give some indications as to what is happening today? Has the pace slowed down? Answer, no, the pace has not slowed down. I said in 1985, there were... 16,500 conversions to Christianity every 24 hours. In the year 2002, there are estimated to be 24,500 conversions every 24 hours. The Christian numbers in Africa today are 350 million. In 23 years, in less than a generation, in 2025, the numbers are estimated to jump to 600 million. 600 million. There will be more Christians on the African continent than on any other continent in the world, except perhaps Latin America. That's the new fact. <laughs> Question. Again, as I remarked earlier, that is unbelievable. Westerners are always incredulous. Would you hazard a guess as to what is fueling this extraordinary explosion? Answer. Well, I can hazard a guess. I mentioned several factors. The end of colonial rule, removing an inhibition on the churches. The effects of mother tongue development and Bible translation. Indigenous agency men and women taking responsibility for the faith, and the theological stimulation of the indigenous name for God acting as a frame for Christian reception and expression. Now, to a Western audience, these answers may not be convincing because they don't deal with the political economic inducements for conversion. But when you think of the people who are converting, who are poor, who have very, very, very little chance of making it in life, I met some of these people, um, who are on the margins of their own society, who live in villages or migrate into towns and cities, who are looking for fulfillment for themselves, but with no guarantee of jobs in their own societies, it is difficult, I think, to be convinced entirely by economic arguments for conversion. Question. I can see how Western explanations after the fact are unsatisfactory. But, even if we grant your premise that there are indigenous local reasons for Christian expansion, are you saying that Christianity was only a matter of 
cultural harmony, coming into harmony with the local culture. And that because Christianity looks like the old cults, the old religions, people embraced it. Would that not suggest that people don't understand what they are converting to? Answer. Well, that's a complicated question. People receive new ideas only in terms of the ideas they already have. This is pretty important for cultural change. Uh, if you really break people's cultural memory, you create off cultural orphans out of them, and they cannot become agents or meaningful agents of change. They become drifters. We have plenty of them in our own society. They drift in and out. Um, no great insights well from their being because they, well, their limbs have been amputated and they can't walk. So we receive new ideas only in the frame of the old ones we have. That's the only way change can, meaningful change can happen. Religion is not a cultural convenience in that sense. There are moral challenges to our loyalties, to our affections, to our attitudes, to our prejudices, to our feelings. Well, question. Let's narrow down the issue this way. Can you say precisely and succinctly what conversion is in your understanding? Answer. Conversion is the turning of ourselves to God. And that means all of ourselves without leaving anything behind or outside. But that also means that conversion is not replacing what is there with something else. Conversion is a refocusing of the mental life and its cultural and social underpinning and our feelings and affections and our instincts in the light of what God has done in Jesus. That is the most succinct way I can think of defining the term conversion. Question. How do you distinguish that from syncretism? Answer. By appealing to the primacy of the local reception of the message in English or German or French, in the case of Africa, in Yoruba, in Igbo, in Limba, in Hausa, in Fulani, in Zulu, in Swahili, whatever the language, that becomes the basis for the transmission of the faith. Syncretism represents the, the unresolved, unassimilated mixing of Christian ideas with local custom and ritual, and that scarcely results in the kind of change signaled by a conversion and joining the church. Syncretism also is the term we use for the religion of those we do not like. No one calls himself or herself a syncretist. It is a name we use of others, often not in a complimentary way. Now, we may use the term provided we use it as a judgment against our own Western syncretisms of the religion. So, unless we do that, I suggest we go careful with the use of the word. Question. 
I just want to be clear I got your meaning right. Conversion, you say, is fundamentally something that God does to us, exactly who we are, where we are, and how we are, rather than a process by which we assimilate into somebody else's cultural practices and patterns. In the New Testament, that's the distinction between a convert and a proselyte. Exactly that distinction. Right? You can be a Jew and a Christian. You can be a Gentile and a Christian. You can be a Syrian and a Christian. You can be an Ethiopian and a Christian. You see? Now, this way of looking at religion is fairly revolutionary. Fairly revolutionary. Keep your culture, keep your language, keep, keep your customs, join the fellowship of faith. <laughs> that's, that's what conversion means, not cultural apprenticeship, but a moral and intellectual transformation. Not only of you and your ideas, but of you and your culture. Exactly where you are. Now, are you saying, question, are you saying then, that conversion occurs with the help of God without foreign aid or sponsorship. Is that correct? Answer. Yes. Question. But is that not individualism run amok? Answer. No. It is cultural and personal integrity grounded in solidarity with the God who is here and who is now. Question. But surely the individual is the one who converts, for you cannot convert by proxy, by sending somebody else in your place. Can you? Answer. No, you can't. But the individual does not convert to himself or to herself, although you should be forgiven for thinking that's how we think of it in the West. Uh, we think that conversion is self-fulfillment. You know, finding something with which you feel comfortable, with which you feel at home, and that's it. Um, but that is not conversion. The individual who converts, converts to God as a social act. <laughs> conversion is not just sitting in your office and thinking, yeah, um, this is a wonderful idea and, and I accept it. You have to come out <laughs> and join the community of faith, community of Christians and identify with them publicly. Uh, though Christianity was born in the catacombs, uh, the message is not a Gnostic gospel. Uh, as Leslie Newbigin used to say, the gospel as public truth, out in the open. I don't have an agenda that is a Christian agenda that I want to hide from you while I want you and your affection and your loyalty for Christianity. That's, that's not, that's manipulating you. But that's not right. So the individual converts, yes, but converts to God as a social act and joining a distinctive community of believers. The individual act of conversion is not a rejection of community, but the occasion for community. Let me repeat that. The individual act of conversion is not a denial of community, but the occasion for community. Question. 
How can we then be sure that people understand what they are converting to? Answer. By the response of faith, they freely make before God their maker. Question. But should we not be able to judge their response to see if it is really real? Answer. I can best answer your question by asking a rhetorical question. How can we probe other people's motives without violating their integrity as moral agents? If we do not accept the right of people to act freely in what concerns their ultimate destiny, then have we not violated the most basic principle of their dignity as human beings and as children made in the image and resemblance of God? And can we really do that? If we're really that skeptical, can we really do that and be in the mission of Christianity at all? Question. I'm glad you're asking a rhetorical question. And I get your point. You seem to be insisting that the religious life is indeed a reality rather than some facade for political or economic interest. Answer. Yes, I am. Question. So let me go back to my question about the convergence or disparity between the secular West and a Christian Africa. You said then that it was a tough question and you pleaded ignorance. But if your answer is correct about Christianity not being an economic or political precursor, then that suggests a major divergence with the Western explanation in terms of material motivation and psychological need. Doesn't that preclude the possibility of a meeting between the West and the non-Western world? Answer, well, I'm not so sure. The West itself is very complex. <laughs> there is the scientific, technological side of it, the rational side, the enlightenment side, but there is also the artistic side, the aesthetic side, the family side, the narrative side of the West. The wonderful storytellers um, in the United States were familiar with many of these wonderful storytellers. William Faulkner is an example of this heritage in American culture. And there are many others whose prose, whose work, is grounded in real experience of real people, tied together, connected, by a fabric of tremendous artistic skill in letting people's voices come through. So the West is complex, not just the scientific, the clinical, um, austere, rational, Kantian discourse on the one hand, and on the other this tremendous pragmatic engineering sense of what works, works, and there's nothing else. So there is, there is a lot of room in between that. Question. Um, where else besides Africa do you see a potential for Christian expansion on a similar scale? Answer. Well, I think mainland China is poised for a major development. Perhaps only years away. I don't know. I just, when I wrote these remarks, it was long before I went to China. 
And having been to China, I can say I've seen, I've seen signs of it. I think what impresses me most is not so much the numbers now, but the intellectual confidence, the intellectual confidence of the Chinese, that Christianity does contain something which is deeply, profoundly relevant to what China wants to become tomorrow. A cutting edge sort of confidence. That is what really impressed me. Uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, and China is going to receive Christianity, if it receives it at all, without the Enlightenment frame. <laughs> See, that's not going to work in China. Um, so, uh, we are really on the, on the verge, it seems to me, of tremendous paradigm shift. Uh, Christianity in the West has almost been choked by the Enlightenment almost choked. And, and now there is a freeing, uh, an emancipation of the gospel, possible, because other cultures, untouched by the Enlightenment, are now, China is an ancient civilization, 5,000 years, and they want to make good. They want to make good. And they think, they believe, that Christianity is their ally. So, I don't know. Now, why do you think that China is poised for this tremendous growth and expansion? Question. Answer. Because, as I said, I read, I read reports of interest in Christianity and of government encouragement of efforts of Christian religious and theological reflection. Uh, at this conference in Shanghai, Fudang University, one of the professors there is the professor of the leading of the leading Chinese Marxist intellectual, the leading Chinese Marxist intellectual, who wrote an article a few months ago, quoted by the Catholic Bishop of Shanghai, to the effect that the communist ideology in China must be adapted, must be adapted, in order to meet the challenges of the future. <laughs> kind of a new revisionist thinking emerging from within this Christian theological reflection. And I think it matters, believe me, it matters to all of us, to all the world, that China gets it right. If China is a mess, we are all in trouble. All of us are in trouble. <laughs> so it really does matter uh, what is happening there. And I was really privileged to see a little bit of this, what you, in England, we call straws in the wind. Uh -huh. Of the sort of the drift of things, the direction in which things are likely to take. Question. But why should a great and ancient civilization like China not find the resources it needs from within its own vast intellectual reserves? Question. Answer. Well, perhaps it can, China can, and maybe should be able to find the answers from within its own traditions. After the upheavals of the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, however, confidence in the old codes was profoundly shaken, and the rebuilding that was undertaken subsequently prompted new intellectual questions. Filial piety was undermined by the Cultural Revolution. The old masters appeared too tame, and the new youth too restless to accede to the, common, to the commands of the status quo. 
So in addition to taking a new interest in Christianity, China has been sending out graduate students to study in the West. All these things seem to me to suggest a portent of things to come. Question. China is so different from the West. Why should Christianity, a Western religion, be compatible with China's very, very different cultures and customs? Answer. Well, perhaps that is because Christianity is not the monopoly of the West, as African Christianity has demonstrated. Question. So are you saying that Christianity belongs to all cultures? That's news to the West, you know. Answer. Yes, I am saying that Christianity belongs to all cultures. Question. Then why did Christianity suppress so many native cultures? Why is the religion so intolerant of multiculturalism? Answer. I am not, I hope, ducking your question when I say that Christianity is the religion of over two thousand different language groups in the world. More people pray in more languages, worship in more idioms in Christianity than in any other religion in the world. Again, if you think that Christianity is an English religion, you are sadly mistaken. <laughs> You're sadly mistaken. Furthermore, Christianity has been the impulse behind the creation of more dictionaries and grammars of the languages of the world than any other force in history, religious or secular. Obviously, there is a deep credibility gap between these facts, as I call the facts of the expansion, cultural, historical, and social, and linguistic, and the reputation of Christianity as one gigantic act of cultural intolerance and cultural imperialism. See, the rhetoric is very, very big, very powerful, and drags the facts after it. Um, but we should not allow the tail to wag the dog. I try to close this credibility gap between the facts on the one hand, on the ground, and the interpretation on the other. Now, let me uh, draw to a, a close here, it's three o'clock, and move into real questions <laughs> from the audience, from the way I've set out um, the material. And let me just summarize it by <clears throat> making uh, three summary statements, rather general in outline. First, that Christianity is the only major world religion that is transmitted, that is propagated, without the language of the founder of the religion. Christians do not know or pray or worship in the language of Jesus. That's a fact. Second fact is that Christianity is the only major world religion that is marginal in the land, in the area, in the culture of its origin. Uh, right now, the birthplace of Jesus, Bethlehem, is in the eye of the storm. And the chapel of the nativity, where Jesus was born, is today surrounded by troops. 
Can you imagine Mecca or Medina were in that situation? It's, it's impossible. It's impossible to imagine that. Or if the sacred sites of Hinduism or Buddhism were surrounded in the same fashion, the world would be in uproar, but not Christianity. Think of that irony. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it, but you have to reflect on it. The place where Jesus was born has been exiled from the Christian heritage. Jesus is the alien man par excellence. We don't know his language. We don't know his birthplace. We don't go there. We don't care for it. The third thing I'd like to say, um, don't be too embarrassed about this. This is a fact of history. Um, the third thing I'd like to say is that Christianity seems peculiar in the confidence with which it adopts the indigenous name for God of other peoples and cultures. And those three facts, the linguistic, the geographical, and the theological, uh, seem to me to be a pretty good statement of where Christianity is in terms of its explosion as a world religion. Thank you.